now I know how to pack the second service. You just spring the clock forward and they all come to the 1030 service. Welcome to North Boulevard. Glad you're with us. Those of you online, glad you're here. You might not be able to tell. Got a, um, a big crowd today. So we're trying to navigate all the spacing and all that sort of stuff. God's good. I'm glad you're here. Today's lesson, I think it's important, not because I picked it and not because uh, I'm saying it, but because it's in the Word of God. So I'm going to start right in. Even though the technology today, the, the uh, special effects are different um, than they were in 1998, I still remember the power in 1998 uh, that hit me when I went to the theater to see the film Saving Private Ryan. I remember feeling as though the bullets were literally flying past my head as I was sitting there. It's the first time I'd ever felt that. It's almost as I could feel the, the wind from the bullets. And I can remember um, just like almost wanting to beg Steven Spielberg, don't let Tom Hanks' character die, which he does at the end of the film. And then, oh my goodness, when Matt Damon's character at the very end, I can't even tell you I'm going to get choked up when he stands in front of that grave and he salutes that last time. It was everything I could do not to just burst out sobbing in front of the whole audience there like a little girl or a little boy. I don't want to offend anybody. <laughs> and I had to think to myself, you know, those are just pixels on the screen. They're just pixels on a screen. Like there never was a, save, a private Ryan who was saved. And even the actors, you know, Hanks and, and all the other cast, they weren't in the room with me. In fact, they had done all their acting like a year before I started crying at that film. And behind all of that pixelation, behind their acting, were all sorts of you know, producers and directors and attorneys and travel agents and caterers and, I mean, who knows what was behind the screen. But just by interacting with the screen itself, I found all of this emotion. Several years ago, Julie and I were able to go to the beaches of Normandy, where D-Day occurred June the 6th, 1944, and visit the cemetery there. And it was after I had seen the film, of course. And it was like, oh, part of the story really is true, that there really were men who really did give their lives, who really did fight what was at the time you know, a threat to the entire world. And it becomes for me one of the best models I can think of for what's actually going on around us every day of our lives, which is this. Every day of our lives, we're interacting with things that we smell or hear or taste or see or touch. But behind the screen of the physics of all of our senses is a great spiritual battle, angels and demons, the devil and the Lord God, the Holy Spirit, the seraphs and the cherubs, all of this, this is the real reality, that our senses are actually only picking up on the pixels on the screen. But behind that is where reality is actually occurring. This is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, and this is like super important, guys. If we don't get this, we will fight with the wrong weapons and we'll lose. Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not the pixels on the screen. They're not real. Or I'll put it this way. They're not the ultimate reality. 
Our battle, Paul says, is against spiritual forces in what he calls the heavenly realms, that is, the ethereal realms, not physics, but metaphysics. This is what Moses wants to do in Deuteronomy chapter 11. He's going to address the great cosmic battle that's going on right now in your home, in your heart, in your country, and in your world. So on the one hand, there stand all the spiritual forces of evil, the devil and his demons, and they are fighting for the control of your mind. Their primary weapon, not their only one, but their primary weapon is the weapon of deceit. This is what the devil does best. He lies to you, and he lies to you convincingly, so much so that he persuades you that what God says is only partly true. He persuades you to compromise things that would actually make this world much more like the reign of God, the kingdom of God. And on the other hand, there is the Lord God Almighty, His Holy Spirit and the Son of God, the angels who serve Him. They too are involved in the great cosmic battle, and they too are fighting for the destiny of the minds of everyone in this room and everyone in the world. They have many tools, but a primary tool of the Lord God is the tool of the truth telling us the truth about who we are, whence we've come, and where we're supposed to go. This is why Jesus says, you can know the truth. He puts it this way, you shall know it. And then he says, what? And the truth, the truth will set you free. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, Moses, in the, third, the second of three sermons, which comprise the book of Deuteronomy, Moses articulates this idea in a pre-Jesus way. The idea of spiritual warfare is present in the Old Testament, but not as developed as it is in the New Testament. So, in some ways, we have to read backwards to see it. But Moses is speaking to the Israelites who are just about to cross over and take the land that had been promised to their ancestors. Moses is giving them his farewell speeches, three of them in the book of Deuteronomy. That's most of what Deuteronomy is. It's just three sermons Moses preaches before the Israelites go over. And he wants them to know obedience to the clear truth of God is how you will survive when you get there. So someone mentioned to me that the book of Deuteronomy seems repetitive. It does. Over and over again, it says the same thing. Obey my words. And you know what? Even though it's so repetitive that he says it two or three times in every single chapter, the Israelites still didn't do it. And it lays out a challenge for us. Guys, right now there is a cosmic battle being waged for the control of your mind. If you allow a lie to take over your mind, you'll be destroyed. If instead you obey the truth of God, you'll live. So whether we know it or not, here's your first blank. We're all engaged in the battle of our lives, and the path of victory goes through the Word of God. So let's read from the text, then I want to draw a few lessons, and we'll be done. Let's start at verse 1, Deuteronomy chapter 11. We're in sort of the first third of Moses' second sermon here. Let me read it to you. Love the Lord your God and keep His requirements, His decrees, His laws and commands always. Now, verse 2 Moses begins an incredibly long sentence. It's actually 
probably a little bit tricky just to follow all of it, but the, 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 the end of it, you'll see why he's just listing all these things. But let's try to read through down to verse 7, which is in the Hebrew language really just one sentence. Here we go, verse 2. Remember today that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord your God, His majesty, His right hand, His outstretched arm, the signs He performed and the things He did in the heart of Egypt, both to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to his whole country, what He did to the Egyptian army, to the horses and chariots, how He overwhelmed them with the waters of the Red Sea as they were pursuing you, how the Lord brought lasting ruin on them. It was not your children who saw what He did. No, excuse me, what you did at, uh, in the wilderness until you arrived at this place, what he did to Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, the Reubenite, when the earth opened its mouth right in the middle of all of Israel and swallowed them up in their households, their tents, and every living thing that belonged to them. It was your own eyes that saw all these things, the great things the Lord has done. So Moses is simply saying, guys, God did these things for you. You're now witnesses of the power of God. Let me just make a quick remark here about the Pharaoh of the Exodus. In the last week's notes, I just mentioned some of the historical questions that go along with this. I only want to say this. So Thutmose II uh, was one of the greatest leaders of the 18th dynasty. The 18th dynasty of uh, Egypt was one of the greatest dynasties. It was, it was the magnificent dynasty of ancient Egypt. And Ramses was the greatest uh, pharaoh of the 19th dynasty. By the way, Ramses was the longest reigning ruler in the history of humanity. When Ramses II died, Egypt lost its grandeur and never regained it, still doesn't have it to this day. So Moses says, you know what? After I drowned the pharaoh, after I wiped them all out, Egypt never recovered from that, and it's true. But there's something else I want you to see in this text, because what Moses says in the text is, you guys don't ever forget that God demonstrated his power to you, to you personally. And God has done that to us. It's just that oftentimes we don't see it because we're not looking for it. We've been trained not to see it. We've been trained to say it was luck instead of a blessing from God. We've been trained to blame people instead of evil spirits. We've been trained to deal with flesh and blood when actually the battle is not flesh and blood. The battle is against powers and principalities and the ruler of this dark world, Paul says. The battle is elsewhere. It's a spiritual battle. So what I want us to see as we go into this text is that everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. And the great cosmic battle for the future of the minds of everyone in this room is a spiritual battle. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Observe, therefore, all the commands I'm giving you today so that you may have the strength to go in and take over the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess. And so that you may live long in the land the Lord swore to your ancestors to give to them and their descendants a land flowing with milk and honey. The land, by the way, this is really cool what he's about to do. We're just going to do it quickly, but listen to what he does. The land you're entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you've come, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot, as in a vegetable garden, but the land that you are crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It's a land the Lord your God cares for. There we go. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. So, if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and serve Him with all your heart and all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season. 
both autumn and spring rain, so that you may gather in your grain, your wine, and olive oil, and I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. So what Moses is arguing here, it's a beautiful argument. He says, look, when you lived in Egypt, you know who gave you your fields? The guys who dig irrigation ditches. So Egypt, the Egypt of the Nile is very flat. It's worth remembering that the Israelites had never seen a hill before. So those of you online here in Middle Tennessee, it's very hilly. Some of you live in places, you know, I can think of places in Texas, for example, where you've never actually seen a hill. Odd because you all name your churches after hills, Highland, Highland Church and the, uh, it's, it's like the hills and all this. There's not a hill in Texas that I've ever seen. But here in Middle Tennessee, there's a lot of hills. These guys, I don't know where any of that came from. I was just trying to be relevant. Excuse me, because I wasn't. But there are marshes down in the Nile, and the Israelites had never seen hills. In fact, if you go just to the west of the marshes, you're in desert. This is one mile, one mile from the green area of Cairo. If you go to the east, to the land of Goshen, where the Israelites lived, it was as flat as Kansas, so they say. Now, here's the land they were going to. It's a land of hills. It's a land of springs. It's a land lush, flowing with water. And here's what Moses argues. He says, when you were in Egypt, the guys who dug the irrigation ditches, they took care of your crops. But when you get to the land of promise, you're going to depend upon rain, and God's the one who's sending that. I mean, you see what he's saying? He's just saying, make sure you understand whence your blessings come. They come from God. And then he says this, and if you disobey God, the heavens are going to shut up, and you're not going to get any rain. That even nature depends upon the obedience of the people of God. He wants us to know whence our blessings come. Let's look at verse 16. Yep, there we go. Be careful or you'll be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not produce rain and the ground will not yield produce. You'll soon perish from the good land God is giving you. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, as many as the days of the heavens are above the earth. So the Israelites literally, the Orthodox Jews at least, literally try to follow this text. So they wear what's called the phylactery. It's the box. You'll see it on the heads of Orthodox Jews, and you'll also see it wrapped around their wrists. Inside the box is a scripture, usually Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you ever go to a Jewish home, you'll notice what's called the mezuzah. It's right there at the entrance door. Usually it's tilted a little bit inward. Uh, if you go to, by the way, if you go to a Jewish hotel, it's not uncommon to see the mezuzah, mezuzim on the, on the doors of, the, uh, of a Jewish room as you go into the hotel room. What is this? Well, inside of the mezuzah is a little scripture. And usually, again, it's from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6 and verse 4. These are Jews really just trying to observe exactly what God says in this text. And this is a teachable moment for us. Because if you remember, I made the suggestion that Christians still obey the Old Testament, but not its statute. We obey its precept. That is the intent of the law. So the statute said, wear a scripture on your head and put it on your door. You don't have to do that as a Gentile. But there's still a precept there that you must do. You must write the Word of God in your mind. And when your hands do something, it must be consistent with the Word of God. And when you sit in your lazy boy and channel surf, the channels you look at must be consistent 
with the Word of God. And when you go into your home, that home needs to be built on the Word of God. You see, the precept never changes, even if the statute does. That is still the case, that the only people who will receive the ultimate blessings of God are those who've built their lives on the Word of God. Got to keep reading. We'll wrap up, and I want to make a few points. Verse 22. If you carefully observe all these commands I'm giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, and hold fast to Him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you. You will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you. Every place where you set your foot will be yours. Your territory will extend from the desert to the uh, desert of Lebanon, to the Euphrates River, to the Mediterranean Sea. No one will be able to stand against you. The Lord your God, as He promised you, will put the terror and the fear of you on the whole land wherever you go. I just want to pause and say Israel actually was promised by God the land all the way from what's called the, the river of Egypt, not the Nile, but a wadi, all the way up to the Euphrates. As far as we can tell historically, they never attained all of this land because they were never faithful enough. They got close in the days of Solomon. But God makes an enormous promise to them, but it's always premised on what? On obedience whether or not you obey. We'll wrap up the text. See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God, I'm giving you today. The curse, if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn away from the Lord your God, excuse me, turn away from what I command you today by following other gods which you've not known. All right, my, my clicker and my brain aren't in sync here. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you're entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. As you know, these mountains are across the Jordan, westward toward the setting of the sun, near the great trees of Moreh, in the territory of those Canaanites living in the Arabah, in the vicinity of Gilgal. You are about to cross the Jordan to enter and take possession of the land the Lord your God has given you. When you've taken it over and are living there, be sure to obey all the decrees and laws I'm setting before you today. So, these two mountains, which are still there, by the way, uh, surround the ancient city of Shechem, or Shechem, we might say. And what God says to Moses is, when you get in the land, I want half of you to get on Mount Gerizim, which, by the way, has 13 springs of water on it still today. The Samaritan religion is still headquartered on top of Mount Gerizim. On the other side, he says, I want half the tribes to stand on Mount Ebal. There is no spring on Mount Ebal. It's a dry and rocky place, still is to this day. Those standing on Gerizim are to shout out all the blessings that come when you obey God. And those who are standing on Ebal are to shout out all the curses that come when you disobey God. Moses just says, I want to make sure you do that when you get there to reaffirm the covenant. The point for us well, the point for us is basic. There is still a spiritual war going on, and only those who obey the Word of God will receive His ultimate blessings. Let me go back to verse 16, because verse 16 articulates this. Be careful not to bow down to other gods. In the same book, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, Moses actually says that idols are, listen to this, demons. And Paul makes the same statement in Romans, 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and then a little bit later, but also in the book of Romans, Paul indicates that idols are actually demons. And here's why it matters. We really are engaged in a spiritual war. It manifests itself in physical ways. 
But ultimately, it's a battle for the minds, the hearts, and the souls of all humans, fought between the Lord God, his angels on the one hand, and the devil and his demons on the other. If we don't know that, we could well lose the battle. That's why Paul says this way, remember your struggle. Let me just put it in the context of marriage. So, if you're struggling with a like a dreadful marriage, if you just don't like it, it's miserable, let me just remind you, there are spiritual forces at work there. If you don't get that, you're going to fight the wrong person. You're going to fight the flesh and blood person in front of you. You're going to fight with the wrong weapons, jealousy or the desire to control or anger or whatever it is. If you don't realize this is actually a spiritual war going on behind the screen, you'll fight with the wrong weapons. You'll believe a lie and you'll be damaged. And the way that we overcome the lies of the evil one is to live in God's Word. This is why we're taught, put the Scriptures between your, fore, your eyes on your forehead. Put the Scriptures on your hands when you do something. When you're sitting in your lazy boy, think about the Scriptures. When you come into your house, have them on your doorpost. The Word of God is teaching us that it's the only truth that will protect us from the lies of the evil one. And I just want to say, Everyone's engaged in this spiritual battle. It's just that some people don't know it. Many of us haven't been taught this. We've not been taught that the source of our problems is spiritual. And so we seek solutions everywhere but the right place. It's a spiritual battle you're facing. And it's the truth that will set you free. And so in this spiritual battle, I just want to remind you that some are going to win and some are going to lose, but there's not going to be any ties. There won't be a draw. Either you will end on God's side or you will end on the devil's side, but there's not going to be a tie. You have to make a decision. And the primary tool that the evil one is using is deceit. That's his greatest tool. He convinces you of things that aren't true. See, I used to think that evil people did evil because they knew it was evil, but they just wanted to do it anyway. And now I realize, having lived 60 years and watched it happen, evil people believe in what they're doing. They come to think they're doing the right thing when they do the wrong thing because they've come to believe a lie. And that's the greatest weapon the devil has. The whole time you're struggling with whatever you're struggling with, the devil is lying to you about it. He's lying to you so he can trip you up. He's telling you all the junk that's in your head. And I'm telling you, don't listen to him. The Bible teaches us that whenever the devil lies, he's speaking his native tongue. Let me give you just an illustration that might help. So, we have plenty of races now in Middle Tennessee, all over the world, the different races, and I've had the opportunity to run in a few of them. So, uh, when you do a run, so we do the, uh, it's four miles on uh, Burra Dash here in Murfreesboro. And so, when you're doing the run, you know, at some point you start thinking to yourself, what was I thinking? Why, in the, why am I doing this? You know, you really start like you made a choice to get out there and then you're kind of regretting it at some point. But all along the way, all these people who have these signs who are yelling out, you can do it. And people you don't even know, you know, come on, you can do this. You know, there's a McDonald's waiting at the end or whatever they're saying. They're saying all kinds of stuff. By the way, I don't know that I would Google signs at the end of the race because up comes some other things that you don't want to see. What if demons are doing the same thing? The whole time you're running the race of your life, there are demons who are shouting out, you can't do this. Demons are shouting out all kinds of lies to you. 
So it's not as though demons made you do what you did, but demons are lying to you about what's happening to you. I'll give you a couple of the lies that demons will say. They'll say this, you're going to have to have more money to be happy. That's not a true statement. It's a lie. But demons are whispering. They're holding a sign up. You're running your race of life and a demon's got a sign that says, you're not happy because you don't have enough money. And maybe if you would neglect some things that are more important to you, in order to go after this money, you would be happy. Here's one. The reason you're lonely is because you're not worthy of being loved. That's the voice of a demon. Someone may have done something to you. Someone may have abandoned you. We have people here who've been divorced because someone abandoned them. That's not your fault. But let me tell you what demons will do. They will start whispering in your ear, it was your fault. It was your fault he had an affair. I just want you to know, that's never a true statement. Never. That's never a true statement. It's your fault he had an affair. That's never a true statement. Anytime you hear that, somebody's lying. I'm just saying. But that's what the demons do. They're, they're holding up signs, lying to us. We start to believe their lies and we start entering into our own spiral. Here's one. You'll never recover from this. You know what was done to you? You'll never get over that. That's the voice of a demon. You need truth coming into your head, not the lies of the evil one. And that's what Moses is saying. Tie my word between your eyes, not the voice of some demon. Tie my word to your hands. Put my word in your lazy boy. Put my word on your door. It's a cosmic battle. And let me say this. Not only does the evil one whisper lies to us to make us feel unworthy, but he whispers lies to entire cultures. I mean, my brain tends to swim in this area more than it should, I'm afraid, sometimes. I get obsessed with these things. But I just want to suggest that America has oftentimes, I suppose you could say, always had cultural lies, and we've got them still. We've got a lot of cultural lies right now. Can I just point out a few cultural lies? And I want to make sure you understand, these are lies that the devil tells us. And every lie brings a curse. Every lie does. That's why we don't believe lies, because lies bring curses, and truth sets you free. Here's one. A line of clothes, I've been seeing this commercial lately, put yourself first. Innocent enough, maybe the clothes are great, I have no idea. I don't even care. Here's what I know. When a culture starts to believe this, put yourself first, here's what we get. Because every one of the young men in this picture of Baltimore has a dad who abandoned him because his dad was putting himself first. I'm telling you, it's a lie from the devil that has cost us enormously in the lives of children who didn't get to pick whether their father abandoned them or not. That's a cultural lie. The devil's been telling America, by the way, what do we do? Like we come up with every kind of treatment for the symptoms, and it's like we don't even address the disease. The disease is that we've got men who will not stay with the children they sired. That's the disease. Why aren't we talking about that? That's where so much of the poverty, not all, but so much of the poverty is coming from. That's what we need to address. It's a moral issue. It's a spiritual issue. That's the point. It's a spiritual issue. How about this one? Love is love. Or sometimes abortion is essential health care. Let me just say two things about this. The first one is... The phrase love is love actually means not much more than I'm going to have sex with anything I want to have sex with. How's that working for America, by the way? 
Working pretty good? We all pretty happy? And how about this? Abortion is essential health care. Let me just say that when two healthy people go into a clinic and one of them is killed, that's not health care. It's just not health care. There's nothing healthy about that. That's not health care. And to have a government that is now plotting to force medical providers to do this and for you to fund it, that's a lie from the devil. And we bear to not call it anything other than that. That's what it is. And if we believe a lie, we start our own destruction. We cannot believe these lies. How about this? Indulge yourself. You know, when, when so many of us have so much excess in our lives, indulgence is the next step. But you know there's always a penalty with indulgence, right? Like, you can remind me of this point when I'm having my open heart surgery. Indulgence brings a cost. There's a price tag. How about this one? I deserve to be happy. Look, God bless you if you find happiness. I hope you do. And God bless you if you choose joy. Choose to rejoice. It's a biblical command. But there is nobody anywhere in the universe that has any authority who told you you deserve to be happy. That's American nonsense. And let me tell you, that lie has destroyed so many relationships because my quest for happiness might cost all sorts of things for somebody else. You know, actually, I deserve to be faithful. I deserve to be joyful. But the Bible never says I deserve to be happy. How about this one? Spring break's up just around the corner, isn't it? Y'all pardon the topless guys there. We be burning. That's the name of a song, I think. So it's all cute, right? Until 10,000 Americans this year will also be burning from drunk drivers. Until families fall apart because of alcoholism, then suddenly it's not as funny, is it? All of a sudden, it's not so cute. All of a sudden, we realize the lie that we were being told about how cool party life is was just a lie. It was just a lie. We were believing a lie. And pardon me for this one. Just north of where my son is living in the city of Portland, Oregon, it appears, though I may be wrong, if you're in Portland, I love you to death. I don't even blame you. It's a blindness from the, the evil one that says we'll have no rules. You know, to have an auton autonomous zone in a city is treason. I mean, somebody check it out. I think it's a capital offense in the U.S. So here in Portland, Oregon, you, every other store looks like a cannabis store, a marijuana store. By the way, I want to make sure we don't believe this lie. In how many states is marijuana legal now? Zero. It's a federal crime. Just because Oregon says you can have cannabis doesn't mean it's not a crime. It's a federal law. It is illegal in all 50 states. It's just the federal government's not enforcing it. Here's my point. Whenever we say we're going to have no rules, so here we're going to defund the police in Portland, Oregon, you know what you get when you have a world with no rules? You get no peace as well. That's why every night for nine months running, there are people protesting. I don't even know what they're protesting. Burning down federal court buildings, uh, besieging police uh, uh, precincts and so forth. Nobody even knows what they're protesting anymore. It appears that they're just protesting the fact that there are rules. Here's an odd one. After the city of Portland began to defund the police or decrease the police budget, the murder rate started going up. Now the mayor of Portland, Oregon is begging the city council to give him money so he can hire more police officers. It doesn't work. I'm just saying, once we start believing lies, we're the ones who pay for it. We're the ones who suffer. 
And instead of that, how much better is it for us to believe the truth of God? Here's the prayer I want to give you. Let the Word of God be the lamp for your feet. Trust the Word of God to shine light on everything that's in the room of your life. The Word of God will tell you why you're here. It'll tell you where you're going. It'll tell you what to do. Here's another one. Have nothing to do with darkness. So I just want to say, fast, take a fast from pagan media. If you think that you can sit and consume endless hours of television, music, uh, of the, the, your internet and all this sort of stuff and come away looking like Jesus, you're probably deceived. You need to take a fast. Matter of fact, I dare you to go a day without that phone. I dare you. Oh, how I love your law. I meditated on day and night. Listen, spend some time every day in the Word of God. This was, by the way, this was your number one answer when I asked the question at the beginning of the year, one area where you want to grow in your obedience. This was your number one answer. I want a daily time with God. If you haven't started it yet, start just two minutes. Start small and see if you don't end big. And while on that subject, once you hear the Word of God, chew on it all day long. Chew on it. And then let me end with this one, obey it, because obedience is the best teacher. My last year of graduate studies, we had a professor who was just hired from the University of Oxford who reportedly read 16 foreign languages. He could read the Bible in 16 languages. Let me ask you a question. Who understands the Bible better, him or the simple person who reads it and obeys it? My money's on the guy who's obedient every time. Because a guy who obeys the Word of God knows infinitely more about it than the person who merely reads it. If you want to know something, obey it. And so I have just a little plug at the end there for Discovery Bible Study because it's such a simple tool. I'm not going to spend much time on it, but I am going to say this. If your DBS is struggling, and sometimes I hear back from folks, you know, we're doing DBS, doesn't seem all that effective and all. I'll tell you, it's almost always the same problem. DBS is about obedience. If you're not obeying the Word of God, DBS doesn't do anything. It only works if you obey. Like it's not a theology tool, it's an obedience tool. If you're not saying, when you get to question number seven, what are you going to do this week? If you're not saying, this is what I'm going to do, and then the next time you get together, this is what I did, and this is how God responded, DBS is a waste of your time. It's about obedience. So let me just end with this. Right now, in a very quiet behind the scenes, behind the pixelations of our senses, there is a quiet revolution going on across the continent of Africa. In the year 1900, there were 10 million Christians in Africa. Today, the number is 400 million, almost half a billion in one lifetime. You know what they all have in common? First of all, let me say this. There are schools being built. We've been involved. Schools being built. There are children who were homeless who are being adopted. Hospitals and medical clinics are going up. Wells are being dug and people are drinking fresh water for the first time since the Garden of Eden. But that's not what's driving the revolution. You know what's driving the revolution? It is the fact that all across the country of Africa, men and women, I've seen it with my own eyes, are picking up the Word of God, reading it, and then just obeying it. And let me tell you, they're finding joy like you've never seen before. My friends, 
It's because there is a spiritual war going on for the destiny of your mind. On the one side is the devil and his demons who are constantly lying to you. And on the other side is the Lord God Almighty who's teaching you truth. Listen to him. Because each of us is like a blade of grass. We might have a pretty flower, but as you can see, it starts to fade. But the word of God... It lasts forever. And it's to that word that I'm calling you this morning. So we're going to stand up and sing in a second. And when we do, if you want to make a commitment, a recommitment to the word of God, a commitment to be baptized by the authority of the word of God, a commitment just to have somebody pray over you, I want you to go to the back of this room if you're present. And those of you online, I want you to look for that tab, men's tab, women's tab, and click on it. Give us a chance to help you. Guys, the word of God will win the battle for you if you'll obey it. Let's stand up and sing.